Our scripture this morning is from 1 John, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In talking to many of you about your spring break, I've heard a a similar story throughout many of these conversations of a focus on time away. Time away from home, sometimes Time away from school, especially sometimes time away from work, but always time away. And what is highlighted in all these stories is the lack of distraction, the time together, the time to reconnect with family and friends. And I heard stories of going to the coast or going to some vacation home or just having time here in town without those distractions. And I began to think of the different games and things that families do together. One of my mom's favorite games to play is the game Taboo, which if you're not familiar with the game, you divide into two teams and you select a card from the stack and you try and get your team to name the word on your card without using some of the forbidden words on the card that are similar to that word. So, for instance, if the word that I'm trying to get my team to say is apple, then I won't be able to use the word fruit. So there's a timer, so you turn over this small hourglass, and then someone from the other team sits usually annoyingly beside you with a buzzer that sounds very annoying. And if you read out a word that is on the forbidden word list, they buzz you usually in your face. And you have to skip the card and move on. And the the goal of the game is to get your team to guess as many of those words without using any of the forbidden words. And you begin to realize that the words on the list are the most commonly associated with your word, so you need to use different references or phrases. So, for instance, if my word is apple, I can use a phrase that's not necessarily directly associated with it that would be on the list, like fruit. So I could say, oh, if I were going to New York, another name for that would be the big, and my brother would guess apple, and we'd get a point and move on. So we're playing this game like we do, and our neighbors come over to join us. And my brothers and I have a lot of shared experience and history and growing up together and watching movies and TV shows and sitcoms and quoting these things. And so we have a common vernacular in a way of referencing and getting to these insights, which make us 
very successful in this game of taboo. So we're playing this game of taboo one day with our neighbor and we're going through and he's still kind of getting the hang of it. And the word that comes up for us is bookie, like a gambler. And my brother is trying to describe these things. And he says, oh, oh, uh, Uncle Charles. And my older brother goes, oh, bookie. <laughs> At which time my neighbor stops the entire game and says, wait, wait, wait a minute. How, how can you get from Uncle Charles to bookie? And that's a whole nother story. But, <laughs> but it's because of our life together and these common shared experiences that we can reference those things and jump from from Uncle Charles to Bookie. And so our brothers, with our huge litany of shared experiences, are formidable, formidable opponent in that game. But I was thinking of different things like that and how we have time together in connection. And when I went away to seminary, some of the professors that we would study in our first year of classes, we got to then take classes with them as we got to be upperclassmen. And so there are no longer professors that we were reading about um, in the text, but it was people that we would interact with every day. Um, so we would go into these classes three and sometimes four times a week and see how these professors would interact with the scriptures. We would see their habits of how they would come before the word in prayer. We would see the references they would make and the different reference materials that they would turn to. We know what they were depending on. We'd see them in the hallways and chat with them. We'd even sit down and have meals with them. And I noticed an interesting thing later in my time at seminary when my fellow students would bring up an article from some of those professors that I had had classes with. I might not have read the material that they were talking about, but I knew the professor well enough that I had a pretty good understanding of how they would react to that material, what their ideas on that situation would be. And I knew where they'd be coming from. To contrast that, I have some, some preachers that I study. I'll, I'll read their books. I'll listen to their sermons. I'll see their things that they put out on YouTube. And I notice when I go and I meet them, I feel as though I know them. And they greet me essentially like a stranger. And there's this difference in the interaction there that I have from these professors that I've not only read about, but shared life with and had conversations with and even sat down for meals with. There's a personal connection, and with that, there's a depth of knowledge that comes not just from studying about them and what they've said and what they've read, but actually knowing them personally. In the same way, if we were to receive a call, if I was to receive a call right now from one of my family members, if my brother, who I dominate taboo with, were to call, he could use shorthand vernacular and he could reference a lot of different things. And at the end, I would understand exactly what he was talking about. But many of you not knowing my brother and not having that common experience would likely not be able to do that. It's similar with a long distance relationship. If you've ever dated someone, you, you know what this is like. Being with them is a wonderful thing. And the more time you have together, the better. And then if you have to date long distance, it's frustrating. And there's there's things that we have to make up that difference. There's things like Skype or FaceTime or texting during the day or free long distance phone calls. But if you've dated someone long distance, you know it's not the same. It's not as good as the personal connection you get with them. You know, it's, it's annoying, it's frustrating. When can we talk tonight? All this kind of stuff. And then you see them face to face on FaceTime and it feels like they're in the room with you, but they're actually not. 
So my friends and I joke that FaceTime is actually like a, a tool for torturing people in long-distance relationships. But it's interesting when we look at Scripture, how God refers to that. When he talks about us in relationship, he talks about us as being the bride of Christ, which are small group jokes that that's an uncomfortable thing for men to think about. But it's this very personal and intimate relationship that God invites us to. You see, he's not calling us to know things about him and study about him. He's calling us to know him intimately and personally. Listen to this scripture from John 5, where Jesus warns us about seeking information about God instead of intimacy with God. Starting in verse 37, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Jesus is referring to himself. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These scriptures are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have that life. Jesus in his passage is bringing somewhat harsh words to the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, the teachers of the law. See, in that I get this warning That there is a danger that we can spend our time studying about God and not interacting with God. I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking of that verse from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if you know all these rules and laws, then you will be fine. No, that 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 verse does not exist. It's not in the book. In fact, he goes on to say later in chapter seven. Many will say to me on that day, bringing up the things they have done. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus sadly replies, I never knew you away from me. As one of my friends like to say, this is not a life where we get to the end and we have a final exam based on knowledge and content and material and we pass or we don't. This is an invitation to a deep and dynamic, wonderful, mysterious relationship with a God that is not far away, that is not a third party studied about in a book, but intimate and personal and connecting. Do you notice how our verse starts off this morning? We know that God loves us because he has given us his spirit. God desires connection with us. He says, I didn't want to leave you orphaned. I didn't want to leave you alone. I came to redeem you and to call you by name. You are mine. You are my beloved. And it is this intimate, personal connection that God calls us to and that changes everything about us. It's not about the things of the flesh or obedience or all these different things. Look at how Paul puts it to us in Philippians 3. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless, he says. And he goes on, but wherever... 
There were gains to me now. I consider them lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may be found in Christ, found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It is this experience with God, this intimate personal relationship that God invites us to, that he longingly desires to share with us, that he whispers to us, come unto me, my beloved. In our small group, we're studying a book called From Slavery to Sonship, which many of you have heard referenced by David. But it's by a man named Jack Frost, who grew up with a very authoritarian father who, when he stepped out of line, would snap at him. I'm not going to do it because it's startling, but Jack uses this very forceful voice when he imitates the voice of his father that demanded so much of him. And he contrasts the story of his authoritarian father with the loving boss he he had. He He was a fisherman in North Carolina. He lived on the shores near Wilmington, North Carolina. And the captain of his ship, was his name was Captain Klein, and he talks about how Captain Klein loved him with a heart like God loves us and allowed him to know that free, giving, graceful love. And he tells the story of the first time Captain Klein had him park the fishing boat at the dock. It's the end of a fishing day, so there's a lot of activity on the docks that you would imagine. So there's a lot of people watching. It's this big commercial fishing boat. And Jack has never done this before, and he doubts himself. And he says, Captain Klein, I can't do this. And he said, sure you can, Jack. Go ahead and do it. And Jack's so concerned about ruining the back of the boat that he doesn't pay attention to the front. And pulling into the dock, he blows out the pylons with the front of the boat, destroying some of the dock and damaging the boat. And standing there, riddled with shame and guilt and fear, used to this authoritarian father that would judge him and demean him. And suddenly he feels Captain Klein's hand on his shoulder and he squeezes his shoulder and he gently says, it's okay, Jack, back it out and try it again. And he's crying and he's in tears, I can't do it, I can't do it. And he encourages him more and he backs it out and he does it again. Captain Klein doesn't talk any about the damage to the boat or the damage to the dock and he just encourages him. And Jack, in telling the story, takes a pause and then says, It's amazing what we can do when we know someone believes in us. It's amazing what we can do when we know someone believes in us. That touch from his boss on his shoulder, assuring him that he can do it, gave him the courage to back the boat out again and reposition it correctly. It's amazing what we can do when someone believes in us. When we look at this scripture this morning about fear, I don't want us to focus on the fear. I want us to focus on all the things that the scripture says about God. David talks about, he asks us the question, who are you responding to? And I like to look at this scripture and see all the things about God and all the things about fear and ask myself, who am I responding to? 
Am I responding to fear in the situation or am I responding to God in the situation? Wesley talks about the means of grace and the acts of service as the things we do to encounter God, the places that God encounters us. And somewhere in the midst of this mystery of this relationship with God, he encounters us. Through communal worship, through the study of scripture alone in groups, through prayer, through silent meditation, through service, through joy, through time with families, all these different ways that we can encounter God. One of the questions from this study that we used in our small group was, what are the ways that you experience the love of God? And as we begin to understand those more and more and step into those more and more, the fear in our lives fades away. It's interesting when you look at the verb for casting out fear. It's not an active thing on our to-do list that we strive and strain for. It's more like opening your hands and having the wind blow this fear away very gently, and you don't even realize it. But isn't that how it is when we encounter the encouragement and love of a spiritual father like that? Just like Captain Klein putting his hand on Jack's shoulder and squeezing it and saying, you can do this when someone believes in us. Just like Jack, he hasn't earned it. He's just damaged and destroyed some of the dock. But God is with us always and always believes in us. As we deepen this look at fear, it is my concern that we look too much at fear and not enough at God. So I encourage you, as you reflect on these scriptures, to focus not on the fear, but on God himself. Not on studying about God, but interacting with God. And I'll leave you with a few cheesy questions. If God were on your team of taboo, could you win? Would you have enough common experiences with him and inside jokes that you could dominate the game? Or would it be like playing with a new partner? Would it be like those professors that I studied about and never knew? Or those professors that I spent day in and day out with, chatting in the halls, sitting in their classrooms, even dining with them? Would it be like the long-distance relationship with Skype and FaceTime and an occasional text? Or would it be the bride and the bridegroom in intimate, personal connection? God calls us to a divine, intimate connection through us. And I assure you, he makes it all possible through the work of his Son and his Spirit. And he bids us to come and receive. So I invite you to go to God, to receive that love, and in that to have your fears washed away. Amen.